Hello, everybody. This is Vincent Horn, and I am back for another episode of Buddhist Geeks, the activity which sustains this life from month to month. Tiago Forte is my guest today. I'm really excited to be speaking with him in conversation to speak about a number of interesting topics, mostly related to the future of work and productivity and how all that interfaces with meditation practice. Tiago, thank you for being here and being a guest on Buddhist Geeks. Thank you so much, Vince. Really, really happy to be here. So I'm not, first of all, I, I, we could have a, you know, a debate about who's happier, but um, I'll just start by saying uh, I found out about you and your work must have been at least a year ago now through a mutual uh, connection on the web. Uh, David Chapman, he was um, retweeting your work and saying uh, very um, good things about it. And uh, it was very cool to start to read some of your blog posts and to see some of the stuff you're doing online because in a way it feels like you're taking up the mantle of some of these um, sort of uh, productivity geniuses of the last generation, people like David Allen and his getting things done system, people that are trying to you know, create better ways to work and live. I feel like you're kind of part of the next generation that's taking up that challenge and thinking about doing this in new ways and, um, you know, considering, um, all kinds of new possibilities in terms of how to think about work and, uh, and, and meaning and purpose and, uh, getting things done. Mm, Yeah. I I won't argue with that framing at all. (laughs) And what got you, what got you, what got you interested in that? And and I want to talk about your, your background with meditation too, which I understand is probably a a newer interest than the, you know, the uh, future of work interest, but I'm curious to hear about both actually. Absolutely. I'm trying to think where they first intersected. Um, I mean, actually they, they kind of developed in tandem. Uh, I picked up GTD, which was kind of, not my first introduction to productivity, but definitely the thing that really got me into the space like in a dedicated way. Uh, when I came to the Bay area in 2012, um, and I remember just, you know, coming here from the Peace Corps where I lived in a small town in the far East of Ukraine. So basically unlimited free time and very little going on (laughs) Uh to, you know, being dropped in the, in the Soma neighborhood of, of San Francisco, just like the most frenetic, high paced, uh, ambitious group of people on the planet. Uh Soma doesn't stand for somatic in this case. No, 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 (laughs) not at all. (laughs) And I just remember looking around like, like what? Like what, how do people like operate like this? Like there must be something I'm missing or something no one told me. Um, and when I asked around, so when I came to San Francisco, I worked at a co-working space called Parasoma, uh, in Soma and it was full of startups. So it's, you know, like many co-working spaces, there were freelancers, offsite teams, startups, and they were kind of our community where I actually worked for the company that owned and managed the space. Um, but going to lunch or going to drinks or just hanging out around the space, it was with these startup people and asking them what they, you know, what they used as their sort of operating system. It was more often than not GTD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and r- I think right around the same time, I, I think it was like in the, the comment threads of some forum post somewhere that I came across a recommendation for a book. And I can't quite remember the title. It's something, I think the title is called mindfulness and then it has a subtitle. Uh, I can, I can find this and we can put it in the, um, in the show notes, but it was just a, someone recommended it as an extremely practical step-by-step guide to meditation. Um, and I just followed the exercises. I'm really into like exercises and practical steps. Uh, and so I think that was the perfect book. You know, they had things like examine a raisin and like, you know, use each of your senses to, to like get as deep into the raisin as you can. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a, that's a famous meditation right there. The raisin, the raisin. Oh yeah. Oh cool. <laughs> oh yeah. Everyone, everyone who's done the raisin meditation remembers it pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. That was so intense for me because I, I never imagined there were such sort of practical exercises to delve into the mind like that. Yeah. Yeah, bring, brings it home in a in a in a in an interesting way since it's so um, so sensory. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I even ever actually finished that book, but that was really, really my introduction. Um, and then I think soon after I was turned on to what has basically kind of become my, I hate to say my Bible of spirituality, but at least the, the book that I come back to again and again, uh, which is called the untethered soul. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's by, um, who I just blanked. Oh, Michael Singer. Uh, and it, he, he is a, he's a uh, former professor. I think he was an engineer. He started one of the earliest tech companies that grew into this, you know, multi-billion dollar tech company. Um, so I could definitely relate to his past. Um, but in the book, he describes just the most, you know, I, I read this book, I probably read it 10 times. You know, as soon as I finish it, I, I just generally just go back and start again because he describes this path of spiritual development that is so practical and tangible and self-evident. Um, I mean, no reference whatsoever to any religion, to any deity, to any, um, there's no cultural or religious references at all. He's just asking you to, to look at your experience and, and describing, you know, what that progression looks like. Uh, and, and actually this would be an interesting story to talk about. I've never talked about this. Um, I've never been on a podcast with the right theme, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, I was so, I've been so, especially after reading his autobiography, which just gives you a whole nother layer to how he discovered all these things. I went to his, 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 um, it's called the temple of the universe. It's this meditation retreat center in Florida outside of Gainesville. Uh, I went there and I, I did a little pilgrimage for a few days and it was a very intense and interesting experience. Uh, going out there and just like just meditating with this guy, meeting him, uh, seeing all the people that came from all over the country to just like find out what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point I'll write a blog post on that experience, but uh, I've definitely had, you know, a series of, of encounters and interesting experiences that have led me to believe that this stuff is not, it's not, fr- it's not fringe. It's not a luxury. It's not, um, only for hippies, it's absolutely central to what it means to be human in the 21st century. Would totally agree with you there. Um, and I'm kind of sad that it's seen otherwise. Um, and you know, that it, <laughs> well, often spiritual traditions, uh, you know, set themselves up for that. Um, and you also have some training background, I know, in Vipassana meditation. How, how did that relate to, um, to to what you're reading from uh, the Untethered Soul stuff? Or did it? It does. That's the – yeah, I've been on a couple retreats, a couple of the 10-day retreats. And that has just been – I mean, originally the reason I did it is it was it was free. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 they always get you in the door with that. I, I can tell you that's, that's, that's true. <laughs> Truly. I mean, when I, I think the first one I did in like 2014, that was a huge deal. You know, I was trying to bootstrap my little, I didn't even think of it as a company. It was just a little freelancing business. And I needed, I, I felt like I needed something to just reset my mind uh, after a couple of years of really, really hard work and, you know, comparing the prices for different retreats and offsite things. Uh, that one was pretty hard to beat. <laughs> It's it's a winner, yeah. They they've they've done a masterful job in the Goenka tradition of uh, of kind of creating a model in which they can churn out lots of free retreats, and that's such a great way to you know to introduce people to to the to the practice because you know it's like as you say it's a pretty obvious cost benefit there, right? Yeah, it's like the it's like the original freemium model. <laughs> yeah. It is. And, and in a lot of ways, Buddhism has that, um, you know, Buddhism has the original freemium model down. Um, so, okay. So you've got a couple different threads in terms of your background with spiritual practice. You moved to San Francisco area, 2012, found yourself at the hub of a lot of different startup activity. And then my understanding is out of that and out of a kind of, what I would describe as a sort of generalist mind frame that you seem to have kind of being interested in lots of different things and looking at relationships between them. Mm-hmm. Um, you start to, you started to develop, I would say n- new ways of thinking about and practicing um, what, you know, David Allen, I think would call productivity practice of productivity. GTD was also my first 
entree into that uh, into that world. And probably, I mean, so many people probably got into the idea that of, of there being formal ways ways of formally practicing um, how to work or how to get things done or do things. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, so tell me about yeah where where. So, so this is where, and this is why I really wanted to have you on the show is that a lot of the things you've been writing about and thinking about in terms of work and productivity, are such clear and obvious parallels between what you're, what you're doing and what I'm seeing in terms of, um, practicing meditation in the, in the, in the networked age, the digital age. Yes. So I wanted to get into that, uh, and explore some of those, those intersections because you're quite familiar with both worlds as, mm-hmm. as am I. And, and yet, uh, you know, you clearly, I think have a much better grasp over what's happening in the productivity world and space and, and vice versa, um, probably for myself and meditation. So I thought, you know, the two of us coming together to explore this might lead to some interesting insights. Um, and I wonder if you could start by sharing kind of how you're thinking about this stuff now in terms of, uh, what is it that you're sharing with people? What is it that you're doing online? You've got a number of interesting things. I just read your book, design your work, mm. which is based on a series of blog posts that you wrote um, a few years back. Uh, and it's just a, it's a great book. It was free for a while on Amazon and I snagged that puppy. Nice. <laughs> um, nice. But people, can, people can still, people can still get it. I think you can still get it for $0 if you have a Kindle membership. Yeah. If you do Kindle unlimited, it's free. Otherwise it's like, I think 10 bucks. Okay, great. So th- this is a great place to start. And then also you've been working on a new program um, called, is it bu- Building building a Second Brain? It is, yes. Building a Second Brain. You can you can find it at buildingasecondbrain.com. Yeah, and this is, this is also, th- in some ways, this seems like the most cutting edge part of your work. Would you say that's accurate? I think it is. You know, I, I tend to, as you mentioned, I have a, a lot of, a lot of kind of frontiers that I'm working out on or at, um, I'm very much in the mindset and this is something I've picked up from probably the single greatest influence on my thinking, at least over the past five years, which is a blog called ribbon farm Mm -hmm. and ribbon farm is like the, I think of it as like the Viennese cafe of the internet. It's like, you know, the Viennese cafes is where like Freud got started and Jung and like, uh, Marx and like all these, these, these thinkers that probably at the time sounded completely crazy. <laughs> like if you walked in to get your, your coffee and they're going on about like capitalism and socialism and all these crazy ideas, but you know, a few decades later, they would completely transform the world. Um, and ribbon farm is this, this incredible, I mean, I have to warn your listeners that it's not the kind of blog you just pop into for a little 300 word post. Um, it contains very, very, I mean, it makes my stuff look accessible. <laughs> it's, it's very deep explorations of some of the most interesting and, and kind of unmapped frontiers of thinking, especially thinking as it goes, as it relates to technology, software, the internet, where the world is going the economy, things like that. Is uh, um, Venkatesh Rao part of the Ribbon Farm crew? He is. Yeah. He's the founder and editor in chief. Okay. Okay. So another character that David Chapman uh, turned me on to and, and here the, the web of connections gets clearer. Yeah, this is yes. a great, it is a great, it is a great blog and um, some really interesting ideas uh, seem come out, come out of there. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of how I, I ha- had had a blog earlier uh, on medium that I would, that I published a few things, but really um, in 2016 and beginning of 2017, um, I did a series, I was an author in residence, a writer in residence, and I did a series of five posts um, on Ribbon Farm. And that was really where my blogging took off. Uh, and, mu- and even today, much of my audience comes through Ribbon Farm uh, just because, you know, I, I don't, I, I write about things that are intellectually challenging. Like I'm, I'm pretty unapologetic about that. And uh, Ribbon Farm has slowly over 10 or more years built up that audience. Um, but I, I've now lost track of the original question. <laughs> Yeah. So I was just curious what you, you, you were talking about the different frontiers that you're at. And I, I was kind of curious, you know, where, where is your, where does your work take you? What's the most interesting stuff you're sharing and teaching on these days? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So I have these different frontiers. Like I have my social media accounts that I post a lot to. I have the blog, I have eBooks. Um, 
I have things like my anti-book club, which, which I can tell you about. Um, but then I'm really, and maybe something that sets me apart from other like bloggers, I guess, is I'm deeply passionate about implementation. Uh, and this comes, I think, from a lot of experiences, but especially in the Peace Corps, where, you know, we'd be handed books on, you know, uh, participatory action research or like, um, you know, service delivery for nonprofits or like these kind of academic things. And then I would turn around and be like, wow, I'm supposed to implement this in a Ukrainian village with no resources, no money, no expertise. Like there was such a disconnect between the theory and the practice. Uh, and that's something I, I can't, I have a real limit to how much I can go into theory before I want to know how, like kind of how, how does this apply? Uh, and that's, and that's why I still, you know, productivity isn't maybe the perfect word to describe what I do, but I stick to it because I want people to know that I'm into the practice actually more than the theory. Uh, and so what building a second brain is, and the reason I have it as a course, not just like a, just a series of blog posts or something is. For people that don't want to just explore the frontiers of thinking with me, who are interested in just like running experiments and just like reading about speculative ideas, building a second brain is where I integrate all of that into one fully sort of curated, integrated step-by-step process. Uh, and that's one reason it's it has versions. So right now we're on version 5.0 of building a second brain because every couple months, every two to three months, I... I kind of collect up my latest research or my latest like techniques or what I've discovered and I add it to the course uh, and all the previous participants get access to that. So it's kind of like if you just want the, the one-stop shop for everything that I'm working on, it's it really is that course. Great. And I've, I've been, I've been eyeing your course for a while and probably will, will uh, participate in it shortly. And one of the things that I'm kind of excited about that you're, getting into and exploring is, um, you know, the, the idea of how to, how to collect and then meaningfully reflect and take notes on the information one finds, um, and discovers. Mm-hmm. And, and this seems so obviously important, um, especially given the way that our attentions are getting, you know, hyper fragmented, mm-hmm. um, by just the number of, di- of inputs coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able then to stay with something, but not just stay with something long enough to understand it and comprehend it deeply, you know, like say long form reading, but, but also to be able to, um, to, to, to gather that information, to have access to it, to be able to find it, and then to be able to kind of make meaning out of it, um, and to make connections between different, different things. That seems to be where I get your kind of going with things and, and, and it, it, what's exciting to me about your work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's kind of like you mentioned that word meaning and there's this, this idea that, that we need to be meaning makers. Right. And I think in the past that was like an interesting philosophical discussion. Like how do we make meaning, you know, for, mm-hmm. for philosophers to debate, but it's kind of like, the way the world is moving, it's getting faster, it's getting more unpredictable, more chaotic. Making meaning has now sort of devolved into everyone's job. It's kind of like we all need to, you know, we don't get all of our or most of our meaning from, you know, society or from the, the, fa- the nuclear family or from your job or from like, you know, these things are not given anymore. It's not just something, you know, an, an identity card handed to you at birth. Uh, it's, it's sort of with the incredible opportunity of, of making ourselves, you know, authoring our own destiny, which is, is more and more becoming more and more feasible comes this enormous responsibility to author your identity. Like (laughs) that is, that is a, that is a Herculean intellectual, mental, emotional, spiritual task, uh, and journey that no one is really prepared for. And I think that's what's driving a lot of interest in, in meaning making. And you're kind of exploring, you know, how what Buddhism and spirituality has to do with that, yeah. which is so important and so needed. I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is how, how do the most practical tools, like actual software, actual paper notebooks, the, the way you use your email, the way you calendar, the way you write down tasks, what do those have to do with me with making meaning? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to, you know, it's, it's not enough for me to tell you, 
for me to say, okay, here's your new identity. That, that would, that's, that's, that doesn't work anymore. What I'm actually equipping people is with the tools, even the ones as mundane as notes, like how to write down your thoughts in a notebook or in an app. Um, so that, like you said, they can reflect back to you. They can be sort of an extended memory and a, an extended sense of self uh, as you take on this task of creating your identity. Okay, this is interesting. So let me let me let me talk about one thing that I've seen in as a theme, kind of through through your through your writing. See if this connects with you or not. Um, and then I want to get more into this question of identity um, because I have a feeling this is maybe one of the more interesting topics where these two fields would typically diverge um, or have very different things to say about identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so what this theme that I was mentioning is it's sort of, I'm not sure exactly the right words for it, but it's, it's, it's related to networks and it's related to looking at the world uh, from the point of view of networks or there's a, a network philosopher I found recently, Christopher Vitale, who said um, it's about looking at the world networkedly. Mm. And there's a few places where I've seen you talk very explicitly about networks. One is in a article you wrote in design your work. And I've got the quote here. You write that as long as we continue to think about habits in terms of simple linear relationships, instead of networks, we will continue to underestimate the difficulty of behavior change, be blindsided by complexity and miss out on the powerful tools network theory puts at our disposal. Yes, yes. I agree with um, myself. So, I agree with myself. You still agree with yourself? <laughs> which is, which is not, not very often. <laughs> <laughs> this is still holding up. So, so that's really interesting. And, and, you know, the context of this article is that you're basically sharing, again, going to implementation, a, a practical way to look at the, the network of relationships, uh, uh, that one has in terms of habits, you know, which habits support other habits um, and, and really mapping that network of relationships out. I found that really helpful um, to, to look at habits, um, both the things I consider good and also the things I consider, you know, quote unquote, bad habits to look at that in terms of a network of relationships and to even be able to visually map it as such to see it in those terms um, then to just think about, oh, this is like a list of habits that are important to my life. And I'm going to just start to kind of try to work on all of them at once or mm-hmm. something like that, which is the common, you know, the common thing people do. I think we, we tend to, you know, look at the, a big problem, simpl- oversimplify it, and then just try to you know, brute force it into working. Yes. Yeah. You know, so what I, is it with networks? Oh, man. Networks. It's just it's like every age has a, a metaphor that is so powerful and so um, I almost want to say abstract such that it can be applied anywhere. Uh, you know, probably in the early 20th century it was factories, like everything, every, you know, your mind was a factory, your house was a factory, your relationships were a factory. Like that was, that's, that was this incredible paradigm, right? <laughs> that sounds terrible. I know. I know. Your relationships are a factory. <laughs> I know, but you know, you could actually, you could actually find insights there, like thinking about throughput. And I have a post on this actually called the throughput of learning, um, which I believe, yeah, this one is free. You can find it on my blog, but um, I think the, the, the metaphor of our time is networks. I mean, with social networks, with the internet, with telecommunications, with all these things. And I find it's such a fruitful intersection, just getting network theory essentially network science, which I have really only the most surface understanding of. Like in this next year, I plan on going quite a bit deeper on it. If you just like pick almost to see, feels like arbitrarily a concept from network science and just apply it to behavior change, habit formation, productivity, project management, something inevitably comes up. (laughs) Something Uh, useful. Something useful. Yeah. Like, um, I have this this post I wrote recently, which is also pub, uh, public and free, called uh, "Multi Multitasking to Multiplexing," uh, and I think the subtitle is like Five Steps to Building a Personal Productivity Network." And uh, if you just look at, I mean, this is one really simple example. If you look at telecommunications, 
how were we able to move from, you know, 56K modems, like waiting for the phone to dial and sending like one email took like five minutes to broadband, you know, a hundred times the speed basically overnight, like in the span of, you know, maybe five or 10 years. And it's through something called packet switching. And what it is, is instead of sending, like, let's say, you know, we're on Skype right now, instead of Skype sending a continuous stream of audio, which takes up like the entire bandwidth, a hundred percent of the time, which is how the old telephones used to work. What Skype is doing is it's breaking up every piece of audio into really, really tiny little packets. And then it's sending those packets over the internet. But because it's in little tiny packets that can be individually identified, those packets are being routed through possibly dozens or hundreds of different routes. Right? Like, I I don't actually know, you know, what, what the distribution is, but there could be routes going, you know, across North America. Other ones are going through South America. Other ones are going East across Asia. Like who knows how this signal is, is moving between us. Um, And what that allows us to do is to transfer a hundred times the data. Because no, no space gets wasted, right? It's like if I'm silent, those little pauses between what I'm saying in a traditional telephone, that, that would take up the same amount of bandwidth, even though it's silence. With packet switching, packet switching, it can get a packet or 100 packets from my neighbor down the street and insert those packets in the spaces between my words. And, okay, so that's telecommunications, but there's such a clear mapping to productivity where I think that we can do something similar to productivity. If we think of ourselves not as like a unit, like I'm one node in a network, but think of an individual person as themselves a network, which I think this, this is an argument I've been making for some time that we can get into. But what that implies is that your personal productivity can be increased by a hundred times, which is what I believe. If we do exactly the same thing with our personal productivity that we did in the past 20 or 30 years with, with packet switching, which is get your work and break it down into tiny, tiny little pieces and have those pieces be individually labeled, identified, tagged in such a way that they can be broken up, distributed across your day, your week, your software, your hardware, your mind, your other tools and reassembled on the other end in a, in a relatively, you know, quick, straightforward fashion. (laughs) Okay, I'm 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 trying to follow here. It sounds like you're trying to break me up into a bunch of packets and distribute <laughs> distribute this throughout <laughs> my whole day and all the context that I'm in, and somehow that's going to come back together. I'm I'm not <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm totally following you. Yeah, it's true. I don't I don't do I, I, my crutches. I need huge expanses of text to explain myself usually. <laughs> <laughs> frontier frontier uh, thinking. Yeah, I find you gotta, you, when you're on the frontier, it's hard to describe what, what you see, I imagine. Yeah, and, and this is my, it's also just the, the expert blindness, right? Like I, there's probably a way to explain that that's much simpler. Um, and I'm continuously trying to take a stab at it. But I usually find the best explanations come from others. Yeah. Uh, and and this, this is another reason to publish everything. I mean, I publish everything. Like I'm about to publish an ebook with my tweet storms which everyone is telling me is just a little bit narcissistic, even for me. <laughs> but it's like, I, as, as soon as I have an idea, I'm halfway to Twitter to just get that idea out there. Because if I just keep it in my head, it's just going to die on the vine, usually. Uh, where I find if I get it out there and we now have tools that I can instantly, in a matter of seconds, get it out you know, in front of hundreds or, or more people, um, then it starts to take on a life of its own. People start to comment they start to refer me to like, oh, actually, you're just making a very poor attempt at an argument that was made 100 years ago by this like German philosopher, right? Mm-hmm. Like that stuff is so useful. And a, and a big reason that I'm a huge proponent of people publishing, even, you know, even if it's not ready, it's not good enough, it's not perfect, like, you're not truly learning until you're exposing your ideas to others. Yeah, this is sort of the, in some ways, ties to the Silicon Valley approach of a software development too, kind of getting code out the door as that's workable as quickly as possible. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so going back to the, the networks, uh, so, so you're talking about ways in which you've sort of looked at network science and seen, you know, seen things there and then sort of applying them across to productivity 
or to, to, to anything. Let's also say to meditation, because this is where I'm kind of curious at the, at the overlaps. Um, you also wrote an interesting post called, um, the rise of the free stack freelancer, the mm-hmm. full stack freelancer. Yeah. Um, full, full stack being a kind of, uh, development, um, term that's arisen. I think in the last several years, I've seen it used quite a bit mm-hmm. where someone will talk about how they have, uh, the, the ability to program, uh, at different levels of, uh, of abstraction, mm-hmm. different, um, different kinds of programming languages at different, you know, that, that, that exist in different layers of this larger technology stack. Yes, say. exactly. Yeah. Um, that was pretty good for a computer engineering dropout. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I, I didn't even know that was what it meant. <laughs> so, so, uh, and if it doesn't mean that, then like you said, I'm, I'm going to very quickly get a number of tweets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Me. <laughs> this is true. So to your point, uh, putting it out there, this is the way we learn. Um, you, you had a term in that article called portfolio thinking, uh, that I found very interesting. And in portfolio thinking, you write, uh, there's a recognition that having multiple parallel projects provides many opportunities for synergy. They don't have to interfere with and impede each other. They can actually combine into something greater than the sum of its parts. Um, this concept I found really interesting, and I'll share a, a kind of interesting learning that occurred while uh, preparing for this conversation. Uh, interesting synergy. Um, it, is that I was speaking to this author I mentioned earlier, Christopher Vitale, who wrote a book called Networkologies, Philosophy of Networks. And he told me, uh, as I reached out to him to say, hey, I'd love to have you on the show sometime and talk about this stuff. He said, well, uh, that's great. I'm working on several books right now at once. <laughs> uh, I'm working in a networked way with this material and finding it much easier to just write several books all at the same time. And on the one hand, that sounds crazy, (laughs) writing several books at once. But then on the other hand, it it points to this very thing that you're pointing out, which is that sometimes having parallel projects being open, working on them, moving back between them, having insights related to one project that then transfers across in some unexpected way to another one or uh, somehow brings them together together. in a way where the larger portfolio, which is what you're getting at portfolio thinking, the larger portfolio of what it is that we're working with in front of us, um, starts to, starts to connect in interesting ways that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Uh, does that sound like an accurate description of what, what you're getting at? Yeah, it, it is. And actually to connect that back to networks, what you're describing is network effects, mm. which are another one of these metaphors that are sort of eating the world where like, that's what every startup is trying. You know, every startup is trying to be a platform now. Every tech company wants to be a platform. Yes. And that's why is when you own, when you're just providing a product or service, it's like you have to earn every customer and every sale by the sweat of your brow, right? When you own the platform, whether that's eBay or Apple with the app store or Google with Google search or Facebook or, or Uber for that matter, by owning the platform, any value created anywhere in your network eventually flows to you. And that's what you do with a portfolio. The, the portfolio is a network, right? So, so yes, I, I think I'm actually working on three books right now too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Because it just, it makes so much sense. I'm seeing there's things that one book is teaching me about what it means to write a book in 2018, like what that actually looks like that I'm then not having to file that away for, you know, two two years from now for the next time I write a book, but then I'm able to immediately apply to the two other projects. Yes. And, um, I think it's, it's exactly that. I mean, you can take this, this conversation as an example, like what, how, how do I justify, you know, to myself and my own productivity, taking this hour to talk to you? If I only had, say, one project, let's say, or one product, let's say my ebook, the one you mentioned, right? Then I could, and of course, I'm here because I enjoy your podcast and it's lovely having the conversation and I want to support your audience. I want to gain exposure, all the usual marketing stuff. But it's also that because there's so many ways for someone to add value to my portfolio, my network, and I don't just mean money wise, 
right? Like there's so many actions they can take because I have so many things that I'm working on. They could buy my book and give me feedback and, and, you know, pay for it obviously, but they could also sign up for my blog, which costs $5 a month. And then they would be, you become part of that, you know, that network, or they could go and take building a second brain, or they could hire me. This happens all the time to uh, bring me into their company or their organization for a corporate training or a talk or a workshop or consulting. It's like, it's almost like, you can think of it like surface area. If your work is a bubble, the greater the surface area and the bigger the bubble is, the more access points, the more points uh, around the surface of that that bubble that people can enter. Um, and you can only do that if you have a lot of things going on at once. You know, people try to okay. people usually, and this is why I'm I'm kind of known for my opposition to deep work. Yes, it's not because I don't like deep work, and I, of course I love it, but it's like. That has, there's, a, there's a, a subtle assumption there that you as a human are this fixed object. You're like this fixed point in time and space with limited ability, limited bandwidth, limited time, limited knowledge. And I don't believe any of that. I, I, I think humans are fundamentally unlimited. Uh, if there's any limits, it's the ones that were the constraints that we're imposing in our own mind. The, you know, the mental models, the paradigms, the beliefs, uh, which is kind of actually an answer to your previous question. What does meditation and mindfulness have to do with productivity? It's like, if you really believe there are no constraints out there in the world and any constraint that you seem to be encountering is in your own mind, it makes much more sense to go to work on your own mind where you actually can change something rather than struggle and strive against this external physical reality that is never going to be under your control and never going to yield to your will, you know? Okay. Interesting. So, um, well, a few things here. One is, uh, do you sleep Tiago? <laughs> do you still have to sleep? <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm working on, I'm working on that now. No, I'm kidding. No, I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. So there's still some, there's still some still useful to think about certain biological constraints. Yes. Yes. And this, this is something, I mean, to be totally, to be totally transparent, something I struggle with is I, you know, I, I'm so passionate about what I do and it's so close to what I, what I would be doing anyway, essentially, um, that I find it pretty difficult to unplug, not, not just from technology, from the ideas. Um, I find that I, I need like a, a part of my reading list. That's like, it's like books that are almost purposefully boring because almost anything I read, if it has anything to do with my interests, before I know it, I'm like jumping out of bed, running over to my notebook and just like furiously taking right. notes. And then of course I can't, yes. I can't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you start running up against some of the, some of the, the real, the real, const- the real biological constraint, but that's, it's interesting. Cause it's, you know, what I hear and what you're saying is in a way, I don't hear you making some sort of larger metaphysical claim. Like there are actually no limitations except in your mind, I'm, I'm hearing you using that as a kind of, uh, as a paradigm from which to operate because it's empowering, um, or it, it makes certain things possible that perhaps wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Is, is that fair? Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's a great point is I imagine a lot of people would hear that there are no fundamental limits and think that I'm talking about like, yeah, your time, your physical energy, your sleep, things like that. I, I really it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, I, I really actually hugely respect and think those kind of constraints are important. It's more like like an example of a, like a limiting a limiting belief, you know, a limiting paradigm is that your, for example, that your what you can accomplish is is directly proportional to your time or your energy. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Like, like once you accept that, that, which is just a proposition, then of course the number of hours in your day becomes a constraint for sure. But it's, it's almost like I'm going one level deeper and saying, I challenge the premise. I challenge the premise that what you produce is even correlated to how much time you have. What I tend to see is people who work the most hours and are burning the midnight oil get less done. Yes. So I, I'm, you're right. I'm not challenging that there are like, you know, in physical reality constraints, I'm challenging that, that it's kind of like when it comes to humans, when it comes to humans, what they can do, what they can create, who they can be. I don't think there is some sort of like 
you know, when people say, I, I don't have the bandwidth. I don't believe in a thing called bandwidth. I mean, this, this, is, this is another metaphor from networks. Networks don't have bandwidth. They have, they have carrying capacity, right? I mean, there, there is a limit to what a network can carry in terms of, let's say, traffic. But that, it's not linear. It's not like, you know, with bandwidth, you add one unit of bandwidth and you have from that point on one more unit of bandwidth, two units, three units, so on, right? It's like adding lanes to a freeway. Um, but if you look at a network, like let's, let's say Facebook, every additional Facebook user adds value and adds more than one unit of carrying capacity, not just where they entered the network, but everywhere. The entire network is enlarged and in- increased kind of exponentially uh, with the addition of each additional node. Metcalf's law. Is that it? I think so. It's related to, yeah, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. I think that's the the place where the network effect is sort of described. I could be wrong. <laughs> Metcalf's law states that the value of a telecommunications network is proportional to the square of the number of connected users to the system. Perfect. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so there, so there are some limits, but, (laughs) but, 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 but the point I hear you making is that to presuppose limits without being willing to question those suppositions really does create limits that aren't necessarily there or don't have to be there. Um, They're ones that aren't sort of hard, hard coded. They're um, ones that we're sort of bringing with us, so to speak. Yeah, that we're bringing with us or we're inventing or we're interpreting or we are taking as a given when it's actually provided by us. Okay, great. So I can follow you 100% there. And and I, I think it's a good – I'm glad we're talking about this because my next point is sort of crossing the barrier between – you know, um, what you're talking about with productivity and and sort of looking at it also in terms of meditation practice. Um, And immediately see some really interesting parallels, one between the idea that meditation practice is about, you know, picking one thing and then doing it really, really well to the exclusion of everything else. That's one understanding of meditation. That would be, I think, the equivalent of what we're talking about is the deep work approach. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then there is this other approach, which is more like how we're talking about networks where one can be engaged with multiple practices, multiple techniques, multiple approaches, multiple even paradigms for how to meditate and what meditation is about and can move between those in a way where there is a kind of, um, there is a kind of synergistic learning process that happens and we can take things we learn from one technique and say, apply them to another technique. I, the, the time this was most clear and obvious for me was, um, several years ago, I was doing a, a meditation retreat, uh, just North of you, uh, spirit rock meditation center. Mm, cool. And yeah, I was there for a month doing inquiry practice, which is not a super well-known technique in that, in the insight meditation tradition, but it's one that the teachers I was working with, um, know well. And I was just basically working with these different questions, um, throughout the day. And the first one was, who am I? The second one was, what am I? And the third one was, what is love? Mm. And that was the one that tripped me up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, as I was working with that question uh, and asking the inquiry and, and meditating on it, um, at first it was really easy and I felt all these great experiences of love and imagery of, you know, being connected to all these people and the planet. And, you know, it was like the classic, what you would imagine, <laughs> you know, a hippie would <laughs> dream about as being yeah. love. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I came out, I came out, I come by it honestly. Um and so after a day or so of, of it just being easy and effortless and all these good feelings coming up, uh, the practice changed. And I started to notice that when I asked the question, what is love, anger would come up, aversion, discomfort, um, things, experiences that were knocking me off my center and making it really hard to stay with the question. And so it felt problematic. and so 
for a while, I'd say maybe a day or two, I struggled with this and struggled and just kept coming at it in different ways and kept finding it to be difficult. I felt stuck. And then at a certain point, I kind of stopped and I asked, well, if I were doing Vipassana, another form of meditation that I'd done for years and, you know, done thousands of hours, like it's very hard to, for me to get knocked off center when I'm doing that practice. What, how would I handle this if I were doing Vipassana? And as soon as I asked the question, just immediately became obvious, oh, I just open to the experience and just notice what it's like. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of hit me, oh, that's love. <laughs> Being able to open to whatever it is. It's not necessarily a feeling. It doesn't necessarily have this emotive quality. I saw my preconceptions, you know, in that, in that moment, mm. my presuppositions about what love is. Uh, and, and they, and they got questioned because I was able to step outside of that practice frame and look at it from another vantage and suddenly see the obvious glaring truth which is that, you know, uh, at least, you know, this is my current understanding that love is that which uh, can hold everything, can open to everything, can know something in attention. Um, that you could, we could call that in a meaningful way, we could call that love. Mm. And so that was like, just, you know, that, that is what, that's the reason I know that there is something to this networked approach, um, seeing those kind of insights across different, um, paradigms yeah you know it, it reminds me of i think it's attributed to <clears throat> to albert einstein that idea that you can't solve a problem on the level at which it was created mm. and it's almost like you have to you can't understand a paradigm from within it you, right you, you need to be able to step back outside the frame of the experience um and that i think is, is something in my experience meditation definitely does is you start to like I guess it would be like sort of taking the seat of the witness. I'm not really good with terminology, but it's like you sort of like step back in your mind and you see the television screen playing, you know, like you see the outlines of the TV screen instead of being so close to the screen that you forget it's a screen. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. That witnessing perspective, certainly it makes an object of something in our experience, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. If there's a connection to productivity here, it's like, I think productivity, I I almost like using that word because it just brings up all these incredibly entrenched and outdated paradigms. Mm. Uh, You know, productivity, that kind of, most people know the connotation to factories and to industrial production. Um, But there's, there's also more recent connotations that come from management consulting. Right. Like management, management consultants really were the ones that brought productivity from like Taylorism to something that any team leader or executive thinks about. Right. Uh, And that's, that's another very stead, very conservative influence. Uh, It comes from self-help. It comes like all these connotations that, that sort of weigh productivity down. And I almost like, it's like, I, I want people to bring those outdated paradigms to the table. Uh, and they do like, sometimes I'll start working with someone or they'll, they'll purchase one of my products. And the first thing is like, I do, I hate that you use the word productivity for this reason and this reason, and this reason, <laughs> they just like, give it to me. And it's so it's works because when they, they tell those things to me, I suddenly have such a clear perception of where they're coming from. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like a lot you can of, see the, you can see their preconceptions. Exactly. They just lay it out, out on the table for me to examine. Yes. Uh, and a big one, just as an example, is I, I work with a lot of creative people, um, creative people, like creative professionals, designers, uh, marketing people, uh, videographers, actual, you know, traditional artists are a big part of my audience. And they often have a huge problem with that word because in their mind, it has the connotation of being practically the antithesis of creativity. Right. You know, productivity on one end, like yin and yang, creativity and productivity. I see them as practically really just two sides of the same coin, right? Like we all know people who are artists and they're they're so artistic and creative, but they make one painting or write one song a year. You know, they're they're two, they haven't figured out the, the pure production aspect. 
And then, of course, we know the opposite. People who get just thing after thing done, just like a machine, but are so tunnel vision and narrow minded that they actually don't see the forest for the trees. Um, and, I'm, you know, th- those are both kind of stereotypes. I don't know if anyone is actually at those two extremes. <laughs> right, right, right. They're, 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 they're more uh, illustrative. Yeah. Yeah. We, how people can get. We all have those people in us. Yeah. Right. Like yeah, some people have more, more of those people in them than others. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think if you could find where you are on the spectrum and move and get like kind of incorporate a little bit of the other side of the spectrum into the way that you work, the, the gains are just tremendous. They're huge. You know, like for my, the, the building a second brain course, the, the, the way the course starts is getting organized. We, we start the first of the three pillars is organizing your entire digital life in a very simple, straightforward system, which I call para, uh, which is essentially organizing all your files, all your notes, like everything in four very simple categories based not on what they mean or their topic, but their actionability. So like very actionable, actionable, less actionable, not actionable, which is a much easier decision to make than, you know, what does this mean? How am I going to use this thing I read in a book, which is a a much more complex decision. Um, And I find people, there's, there's people that do that first pillar and they're like, this was, you know, totally revolutionary. I've been trying to get my, um, I don't know, graphic design business off the ground for years. I'm so good at the creative side. You know, I can, I can make the clients so happy. I can, I can create these beautiful works of art really, but I have not been able to just get the basic organizational side, just my emails, my appointments, sometimes my finances, my taxes, like that kind of very kind of mundane infrastructural stuff to a minimum level that can support something like a business. Right. Takes a lot actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people, I mean, I have such a passion for people being entrepreneurs, any, any stage of entrepreneurship from a few dollars, you know, as a little online side project, all the way to to launching their own company. Um, just because it's just such a different pace of learning and a different, and like a, I I hesitate to say better, but I do kind of feel like it's better. (laughs) Um, kind of level of responsibility and engagement and, um, ownership of the work that you do, uh, when you actually depend on it for a living, you know? Uh, and what was I going to say about that? Uh, I had a point to that, but I forgot. <laughs> well, let, let me, let me loop back to what you're saying again, um, around the net and around the network approach. Um, because it, that spectrum that you're talking about is so interesting to me. And w- one of the ways that plays out with meditators is you know one side of the of the spectrum we're describing is um kind of just being focused on on productivity on just like a single thing and really getting you know getting really good at it that that would be the meditation equivalent of the what what one of my teachers called the one technique freaks Mm. people who just focus on one thing and, and like go to town and they become really really good at a particular technique um and then they teach that technique. Of course, <laughs> they teach what they know. Mm-hmm. Um, I did this um, in the first couple of years of my own um, uh, teaching. I taught what I knew best, which was one technique called the noting technique. Um, and then, you know, after a while, it became obvious to me, but I don't think it does become obvious to everyone uh, who teaches that that one te- technique doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't work for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the, it's like by, by virtue of trying to help other people reach their actual goals, you know, that there has to be a kind of expansion of, okay, what, what else can we pull from and draw from? Well, fortunately in the Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of things to draw from. Um, and so there's, you know, not just mindfulness techniques like that one, there's also concentration techniques and there's, you know, the one I mentioned before inquiry, there's heart-based practices, heartfulness practices, there's formless awareness practices where you drop all the technique. That is the technique. Um, and there's embodiment practices practices that bring you more into the body, um, and, and, and kind of let you feel that from inside, mm-hmm. um, you know, to me, and there's analytical practices that use the mind in very explicit ways, mm-hmm. you know, there's all kinds of practices. Uh, and so to me, that's been where this idea of, of, uh, networking comes, comes in so heavily is, you know, what, 
having that larger surface area, you know, as you said, um, of, of, of knowledge to pull from, um, seems to make it much easier to support people because, you know, not everyone needs the same thing at the same time. Um, Absolutely. and then, yeah. And then there's, and then as you're saying, there are all these very interesting connections that can be opened up. It seems like in exploring that spectrum. Yeah. That's, that's such a man that that's a breath of fresh air because, I've been exposed really to just to Vipassana. Um, right. And, I, and that's a one tech, that's a one technique. Yes. <laughs> if, there's a, if there's a one technique freak, it's Goenka. Yep. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I, what you, what you just said makes me want to explore some of those. Um, and that's, that's true in the productivity space as well. Like it's so funny, yeah. like these different schools of thought and productivity, people are positively like religious about them. Oh yeah. It's like, it's as if it's a part of their identity, like the way you work. No, there's one way. It's the only way, whether it's Kanban or the theory of constraints or GTD or something else, it's people latch onto one. And I think it becomes the idea that it's not the one tool for every job becomes threatening. And then it becomes a matter of defending that. Yeah. 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 This, this is, oh yes. This is something I'm encountering with, um, with, physical space right now is for the longest time I just worked from, I worked from home from my home office or just wherever I happened to be. And I didn't think much of it. Um, and what I've found recently is that depending on the type of work I'm doing or the state of mind that I want to create, the place that I locate myself is so, so, so critical. It's a massive leverage point. I mean, I just, uh, a couple months ago, got a, got a membership at the impact hub which is kind of a socially minded co-working space. Um, they have them all over the world, but the, the one by me is in downtown Oakland. Mm-hmm. And man, being in this huge light filled space with people with an incredibly diverse group of people working on just every variety of social impact you can imagine, uh, puts me in a state of mind and a state of being that is very different. <laughs> Um, like, whereas in contrast right now, for example, I'm in a, I chose for this to, to have this conversation to be in a, it's a residential co-working spot, um, called remote dot space, which is in the, the hills of Oakland. Um, so I have this just gorgeous view of the Bay. Like I'm looking out over, you know, treasure Island and angel Island to my right. There's like a, there's like an organic garden full of vegetables and things. There's this beautiful, you know, sunlight streaming through the windows and this conversation is different, or, or at least my state of mind is different because of this space as opposed to being down in downtown Oakland. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's kind of uh, a bit like environmental design in a way, sort of desi- designing the space that you're going to be in for certain things. Exactly, which is, which is pretty unique to modern work, right? Like that's if you're at an office and you have to be at the office during certain times, you don't, that's just a leverage point you don't have access to. Right. That's, it's, it's, it's sort of a luxury for, uh, for entrepreneurs and freelancers in a way to, to be able to, to do that. It is, it is. And, and, you know, if I, I'm trying to think like what I want to leave your, your listeners with. Yeah. And yeah. if there's one idea, and I don't know if I've ever really mentioned this partly because I've kind of re- recently discovered it as a principle for myself. It's if you can look at anything that seems to be a threat and instead think of it as an opportunity. And when I say think of it as an opportunity, that is actually a creative act. It takes some very fundamental, in some cases, reframing, repurposing, reperspective, if that's a word, um, Mm -hmm. to, to come to a different conclusion. And I try to do this, you know, I've, I've, and all my stuff about networks, I've tried to argue that multitasking which is universally decried as this scourge on humanity uh, or really more properly like switching rapidly between things like email and phone call and then meeting and then working like these kind of very little short segments of work that 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 is not inherently bad. That that, that's actually analogous to packet switching. We can see the, the fragmentation of our daily work where it's split up into all these little micro fragments, we can either fight it. We can say, this is bad. This is wrong. We need to block off our calendars. We need to destroy our cell phones. We need, you know, deep work and all these things, or we can just say, look, 
this is the way the world is going. What can we borrow from? Network metaphors, telecommunications, the theory of constraints, mindfulness and meditation. What can we borrow from to make the way the world is going be an opportunity instead of a threat? And that, that is a, that is, if anything, a spiritual and emotional skill, much more than an intellectual skill because threats are threatening and you have to be willing to like be with those sensations in the body and to reinterpret them as excitement or as, as adventure or as something else and not as, you know, a sign of your impending doom, even for something like, like multitasking or rapid switching, which on the surface seems to be so disruptive to our attention and our well-being. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.